0: Kia ora
1: and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries and other organisations. Mā mihi mō watched a film last week called On the Basis of Sex, which, yeah, before you go getting too excited, it's this is not that kind of show and that was not that kind of movie, it's about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she was a Supreme Court Justice in the USA, she passed away this year actually. Anyway, the movie shares the story of her first big case in 1970, which set a new precedent for gender discrimination in the law, and there was a theme running through the film based on a quote right at the start from one of her law professors at Harvard Law, A court ought not to be affected by the weather of the day, but will be by the climate of the era. And this was a continuing theme throughout the movie, that you need to understand the bigger picture, the bigger movement you're part of, rather than just being fixated on the right here and now. And I think that quote sets a nice tone for this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. Today I'm talking with someone who has had a long and industrious career in local government here in New Zealand. He started as a community advisor with Christchurch City Council, having already had a 10-year career in community-based roles. And fast forward 35 years or so, and our guest is one of New Zealand's leading experts on everything local government. He's obviously got a massive brain, and you can hear that coming out in this episode. He's quoting studies left, right, and centre, as if he'd only just read them this morning. But he's also got a unique perspective because of what he's seen change over the 40 years or so that he's been working in local government, including some things I learned about Christchurch, my hometown, that I had never heard about before. So there's two main things we cover in this episode. At the start, what he believes are the two biggest changes to local government in the last three or four decades. And the first is a really good news story related to diversity. And the second relates to the gradual shift away from consultation to engagement. And the other thing we dive into is the localism project, which he's been leading. So localism is all about locals having power and resources to do good things in their community. But in New Zealand, we have one of the most centralized government financial systems of any country in the OECD. And that might not sound immediately like a problem to you, but our guest explains why and a pathway for making change. So there's a lot to gain from this episode. Not so much about the weather of the day, but more about the climate of the era. So I do hope you enjoy and welcome to the show, Mike Reed. been described as New Zealand's leading authority on local government issues but looking back on your career what have been the most formative points do
0: you think? Well there have been a variety I guess my knowledge and reputation of local government partly comes from the fact that I've been in it for quite a long time and regardless of myself I've picked up you know a little bit about quite a broad range of issues but not necessarily an expert in any of them But in in terms of this part of my career, the critical decision was way back in 1986 when I decided to apply for a job at Christchurch City Council as a community advisor. And prior to that, I'd spent 10 years working in the non-governmental sector in Christchurch in a variety of roles for a variety of organisations and had had a reasonable amount of involvement with the Christchurch City Council at that stage, working with the community workers. I remember we we approached the council and worked with officials on developing a, What at that stage, was a Metropolitan Grants Program. Because each of the, those who can remember that to Christchurch before 1989, there were about five or six different local authorities in the city. Mm. And community organisations were always having trouble when they were looking for grants that you would apply to Christchurch City for a grant, then you'd have to also apply to Heathcote County, and Waimori County, and it, it went on and on. And so we approached all of the councils and uh, got them to agree to have a metropolitan grants fund. So they all put money into the bucket, and that meant that citywide groups would also have a chance to get some funding for, for their programmes. And and that developed a relationship with the community workers at Christchurch City and I'd been involved in a training and training community workers in the city. And ran some programs for the council staff as well, so when, when one of that team left, I thought well, maybe I'll apply for a job, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's that sort of started my interest and. Like a lot of people who start working with local governments, not until you're actually inside the organization that you actually begin to understand the high degree of influence it has on people's lives yeah and just as strongly the potential influence it could have on people's lives if you know by introducing the right types of policies Mm. so the potential for local government to promote well-being and strengthen the social and economic well-being of places is is significant
1: yeah awesome nice story mike so there's two things i enjoyed hearing there one was you know you referring back to christchurch and there being several councils to manage then and you know we're, we're kind of always in this situation of trying to figure out what's the ideal number of councils to have, what should the boundaries be? And it's sort of when you grow up with the boundaries being set as one, you almost feel like, well, that's what it should be. But actually, you know, when you know a bit more of the history, it might not have been that long ago that that one council was four, five, six, seven councils. I didn't even realize that about Christchurch and I grew up there. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, one of the things I noticed, Mike, is if somebody says at a dinner party that they work in local government, people will will either yawn or they'll get very fired up about something. So Mm. what was it, do you think that actually attracted you to local government in the first place?
0: Uh, Well, it was the nature of it. Uh, Well, Croatia City has always been a very progressive local authority. It started providing social housing way back in the 1920s. (laughs) It 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 opened the first creche in the 1930s for shoppers in the centre of the town. So even regardless of whether its its leadership was sort of centre-right or Mm centre-left, you know, it had the strong sense of being the government of the city. And so I was delighted to be part of that team. And interestingly enough, my first responsibility in the community development team was dealing with the issue of deinstitutionalization So it was that period when governments, you know, another bright idea that we should close down some of the mental hospitals and mental services and care for people in the community, which is theoretically a really good plan. Mm. But it only works if actually there is a decent range of community facilities to actually mm. provide that care.
1: Yeah.
0: And in the mid-80s, the city council was having a real problem with a lot of patients, mental issues, people, patients who had previously been in Lake Alice or other institutions, nowhere to go on the streets and really taking refuge in the city council libraries. <laughs> and the council, at, at its wisdom, looked at the situation and said, we really need to invest in trying to encourage NGOs, in most cases, develop, develop facilities and programmes for institutional patients when they're on the streets. So my job for a number of years was working with NGOs to develop services for people with mental illness, which, yeah. which I thoroughly enjoyed.
1: Wow. And that's the diversity of local government work, isn't it? Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. But as you say, a lot of people's initial involvement, maybe this is where I go to get a building certificate. Yeah. This is where I go to register my dog. And all of these things seem more as problems than necessary yeah. opportunities or yeah. Um, yeah, advantages.
1: And then if we fast forward a year or or two or three, you've been working now with local government New Zealand for some time. So what have you noticed, Mike, in your career? Like what are the big things that have changed since your days of working back in Christchurch City Council?
0: Well, the sector has actually changed a lot in different ways. One of the pieces of work I've just finished and published, I'm really quite pleased about it. Is a written a, which is the, a report of a survey we did earlier this year, looking at who are our elected members. So we've often grappled, and one of the real criticisms of local government is the fact that its leaders tend to be well, obviously older. Tend to be actually, let's be frank, they tend to be old white guys. Yeah. All right, that's who we have generally been for a lot of our life. Even though some of our top leaders like have been women, like Vicky Bucks and others, the general kind of picture and the makeup has. And so for the last few elections, I've been surveying elected members to get a sense of, you know, are we changing? Mm And it's extraordinarily important that our democratic institutions actually not just represent our interests, but also be representative of us. Mm -hmm. You know, so people are more likely to vote if they see themselves reflected amongst the governors and that sort of thing. So what was really heartening when I wrote up and published this year's survey was to find how much more diverse we are in some respects so, for example, our proportion of Maori elected members at the mile is sitting at 13.5%. That's up from 10% in 2016 and 7%, you know, in the previous election. Mm. So we've seen a significant growth in, in Maori elected members. And you really see that when you go to council conferences and meetings, we're seeing it a steady but also very strong growth in the number of women in local government. We're now sitting over 40% proportion of councils, and rather thrilled that we actually now no longer have any councils, as far as I can see, that have no women on them, which has been a tradition at Western Region for quite some time. (laughs) (laughs) But they have have a number of of very committed young women on the Western Region. And so Western Region is changing, then there's hope for the rest of the sector. (laughs) Also gradually getting younger. So Uh the number of councillors who are and being young in our terms is relative, but we, we put the cutoff at say, under 40, has now reached, I think, 15%, and that's more than doubled since the last election. So, wow. and, and fascinatingly, and not surprisingly, younger councils tend to be more likely to be Māori and more likely to be women. So we're getting a new cohort altogether coming in, and I think this could have you know, really important effects on the kind of performance of councils in the future, and maybe how they're perceived. Yeah, so that was for me is that's a kind of a a recent good news story. And I'm very pleased to see how the media has picked up those stories. And this morning, I was just reading a a lovely report on two sisters who are Maori who are elected to a council on the Waiarapa. And, you know, so we're starting to see that diversity reflected around around the country.
1: So increasing diversity of councillors. Are there any other big changes that you've noticed uh, in your time in the sector?
0: Well, uh, yes, I mean, some of them are challenges more than opportunities, but the, the big one that I was lucky enough to be involved in, and was really significant at the time, although many of the measures have been rolled back by subsequent governments, was a rewrite of the Local Government Act, and that was in 2002, mm. and So, yeah, which is not surprising. So local government, for those who don't know, actually is a creature of statute, and we get our powers and roles set in legislation by Parliament. And in 2002, the government of the day agreed to rewrite the legislation, and, and it needed rewriting. The, the previous Act, the local government Act 1974, as you say, was nearly 30 years old. But most of that actually dated back to the 19th century. <laughs> and uh, by the time we got to 2002, the Act was more than 750 pages long. <laughs> and we'd got to the stage where judges had almost given up interpreting it because it was so complex. Yeah. As you can imagine, as happens over time. So... Yeah. You know, and really with the commitment of Helen Clark, who had had some time in local government and understood really more about sector than some leaders, we got a big commitment of staff time to start from scratch. And it's first and almost only time we've actually written a new statute in a partnership model. So we had a hundred, I think I, I counted at one stage, we, we had probably a hundred staff and elected members from councils involved in the process of rewriting the legislation at the policy phase. It was it was absolutely wonderful. You know, in multiple project teams looking at different aspects of the legislation, and turned it around from being a piece of legislation, which was really focused on the old legislation had, it was based on what we call the principle of ultra vires, which simply listed all the things the council could do. Mm. But that made councils very risk averse, you know, we don't do things because it's not in the legislation doesn't allow mm. us. It also meant you always had to go and change the legislation because history doesn't stand still. <laughs> yeah, and it's very difficult to define in detail what every council in every town should be doing. Mm. And we turned it around to a much more modern style, which we call a power of general competence, which is it's like saying that councils have the same powers as an individual person to achieve their purpose. Right. You know? so, and it may have some what we call prescriptions, which says, but not these things. You know? mm. So typically around the world, I say, well, you've got a power of general competence to achieve your purpose. But of course, you can't arrest people because that yeah. belongs, your power belongs to the police or you can't yeah. do X, Y, and Z. And so we did two things. We turned the legislation on its head and, and gave councils the flexibility to do things as long as they were going to achieve their purpose. And we had a really interesting discussion as to what the purpose of local government should be. Mm. And that's when we introduced the well-beings. And we simply said, and we went to the officials and when they asked, well, what should the purpose be? And we said, well, actually, we think the purpose should be to promote well-being. And at that stage, you know, Typically, it was kind of social, economic, and environment well-being. And I had spent two years working for Creative New Zealand prior to going to local government New Zealand in 1996. That's why I went to Wellington from Christchurch, in fact. And had some discussions with them about, do you think culture should be one of the well-beings that local government should promote? Because after all, when you look at what councils do, culture is a big part of it. They provide the libraries, they provide the performing venues, the art galleries, that's in the sort of formal part of the culture but they they also run fund and support a broad range of participatory activities from from street art to street sculpture. And so the government agreed and we suddenly had four well-beings. So that for me was actually seriously pleased with the local government 2002 and the way in which central government and local government worked in a very effective partnership to do that. And the other aspect of that legislation, which I think seriously pleased about and was involved in doing and very relevant to the focus of our conversation was the f- to refocus the idea of consultation into engagement mm. so prior to 2002 and going back to the reform of local government in 1989 and i have to tell everybody when i talk about the reform of local government because i do teach at the university here on local government reasonably frequently is that some people think that 78 councils is a lot. But when I started local government, there were 851. <laughs> wow! So, you know, by any scale of the magic, we don't have very many at the
1: moment. 10% now compared to what we did have. Yeah,
0: yeah. And broadly, in international, when compared to other countries, we have very few. My favourite country, actually, is Iceland. It has a population of 300,000 people, and it's got 78 councils, <laughs> which is a third of what they had. 20 years ago, they did a big amalgamation. But anyway, wow. going back to the thing for us that when local government in New Zealand was reformed, they didn't just amalgamate lots of local authorities. They also changed the way councils work in a very, very big way. I feel like we, we referred to, they modernized the way councils worked and required councils to start consulting with citizens about what they do. And mm. that seems absolutely sensible. But before 1999, it wasn't actually something we ever thought of. Mm. I mean, quite bizarrely. So, councils would put out a draft plan, and people would be able to comment on it, uh, you know, or, or other form of policy document. In 2002, we kind of started to turn that around, because the problem with consultation is you're you're providing feedback on someone else's idea, mm. and and your ability to change it is often really limited because actually they might have might not have defined the problem in the right way in the first yeah. place, and so the LGA began to turn the notion of consultation into engagement. You know, so it's really important for an institution like a local government to start talking with its communities before it defines the nature of the problem it's solving. It may say, we've got an issue here, we need to talk to communities to see what is the range of, what's the nature of the issue? Actually, what are the different ways we might solve it? Then is a good time to start go out and consulting and, and get feedback on what that proper best solution might be. So,
1: And if I can like, jump in and ask a question there, Mike, so the Act changed that from looking at consultation to more being about engagement. How well do you think councils are implementing that change in focus?
0: Well, I think we have to say that local government, like communities in general, is always, you know, life changes, it's a moving feast, and there are always tensions between members who want to do who are really in the our goal is to do stuff as efficiently as possible, which means mm. as quickly as possible. And then the other side, those people will make, do this thoroughly and take people with us. So that's mm. kind of tension that exists in all organisations and local government is no different to that. So we're, we're in a sense, we're constant and at the same time that within the institutions, people change, mm. you know, so you will have people in an institution who really understand engagement and what's needed for good engagement, they might leave or retire, new staff come on, and they may not have had the same training, they may not understand the legislation. So there's always sort of, if you like, a a process of having to refresh. Mm. And and some councils will take that notion of engagement and see that as the most important thing they do, Mm. really invest heavily in it. Others may, you know, see it in, in much more narrower terms, much more kind of utilitarian terms as, oh, it's just a mechanism of getting, of doing what we're going to do anyway. So my first point is answer to your question. It's a really good question, by the way, is that as we can never generalize, you know, mm. so local government is 78 governments, basically. Mm. And at any one point in time, any statement is going to be true about one of them. So we do invest a lot of time working with elected members. And I know our, our colleagues at the Society of Local Government Managers spend a lot of time working with officials about broadening their ideas about engagement and what that means and selling. Why engagement and building relationships over a long period of time with your communities has huge advantages, not just in getting a project done, but in by getting buy-in and support from communities who can help you actually put that project into place if they actually are part of the defining the issue and, and dividing the solutions. Hmm. So we're selling this. And my general view is that within every council, you know, there are people who understand this and put it in place or attempt to use it on a regular basis. Yeah. A lot of our statutory processes really are focused on the consultation phase, you know, like the long term plan is more a consultative exercise rather than mm. an engagement exercise. But we do in our, in our work with councillors and officials say, what matters is not the consultation afterwards so much as the engagement beforehand. Mm. You know, and, and so the legislation's got quite a few flags in it. But to be really fair, I guess, There were nine years under the previous government where a lot of those provisions were reduced or removed entirely from the legislation. So the 2002 Mm. Act, as we developed in 2002, has been amended significantly in the last 12 years. And Mm. some of the emphasis on engagement has diminished, Mm. but it's still there. It's less prescriptive, but the discretion is there and the big signals are there. So Mm. the principles are still in the legislation. And probably most importantly is in the purpose statement of the local government act. Which is not just promoting the well beings, but is enabling local democratic decision making by and with communities. And funny enough, that language is really important. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that decision making by sometimes gets forgotten that actually I, absolutely. it is even it's, in there. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Well look, Mike, that's a, a really fascinating journey through your career and what some of the big changes have been. One other thing I really wanted to talk with you about today was your recent work on the localism agenda or the localism yes. movement. And for somebody who's never heard of the term localism before, can you explain that before we get into anything else?
0: Yes. Well, it's a very simple term. It's the opposite of centralism. So <laughs> like We take the way things are for granted. You know, so for most of my life, we just took for granted that central government would make most decisions. And really, it's only, you know, I, I felt kind of embarrassed by it, but it's only in the last 20 years or so. And through my kind of study of local government systems overseas, that you, you start to realise that actually the way we work here is not necessarily the normal way in which government works.
1: Yeah, I think the stats on that at what, 86% of finance here is administered by central government compared to the OECD average of 46%?
0: Yeah, that broadly speaking, yes, yes. And when I, it was actually 2009, I saw, I read an article on The Economist, and it it had a graph, and it was actually an article about the UK, and it started off like saying that the UK was the most centralised country in the OECD except New Zealand, (laughs) and I thought, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and again, it's one of those questions I always put to my local government class at Victoria University or used to. And you, if you had a spectrum between highly centralised and highly decentralised or, you know, localised mm. is another way of thinking about decentralised.
1: Mm.
0: Where would you put New Zealand? And everyone puts it at the highly decentralised end. And so then you have to walk them back and show them some figures and they're always really, really surprised. So that all, in terms of New Zealand were highly centralized in terms of uh, government spending. You know, government raises most of the taxes, spends almost all the taxes. It hasn't always been that way either. So I uh, really indebted to some work by by a Canterbury historian Sort of really interesting article uh, a couple of decades ago looking at this. And he worked out if you went back to 1920, the expenditure b- difference between central government was about equal. So it was about 50% each. Right. Okay. You know, so over time, things have become more centralized. And for, in terms of our context, you can understand why, because it was with the growth of the welfare state, you know the whole benefit system, the health system, free schools, all of that in New Zealand became the business of central government. Hmm. Whereas if you went to the Scandinavian countries, you find that the social, say Germany, for example, as well, um, you find that the whole the provision of the sort of welfare state is primarily a local government role, you know, rather than a central government role. And the answer of that is not all that hard either. And it goes back to my previous comment. In New Zealand, we had 851 local authorities. And the general view, I think, of officials and politicians at the time was that councils were to, did not have the capacity to take on bigger responsibilities. You know, so, I, I mean, there are other reasons why we would point to why New Zealand became so centralised, but a lot of it is to do with the fact that local government itself was seen to be very fragmented, average size, you know, you had small councils, before 1989 you had councils mm-hmm. with only 100 people and, you know, population mm-hmm. and things like that. So we never had a structure of local government that made it very easy to decentralise or to put those functions. So for us, the Localism Project stems from, one, an awareness that New Zealand is out of step, you know, with most other countries in the developed world, because of the high degree of expenditure responsibility located with central government. And, and also because, you know, if you look at countries like the United Kingdom and elsewhere, there had been a real interest in in the notion of localism was a narrative that started to grow in a whole bunch of other countries. And I I followed a think tank in the United Kingdom called the New Local Government Network, early on my time with LGNZ. And they published a fascinating paper called New Localism, Right. and against its, and that was about 2000 and 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 they just kept pushing and pushing and 10 years later if you went to UK elections almost every party whether it was the conservatives it was labor the social democrats all had localism policies right. you know so that over time you know the academics think tanks communities really managed to shift what was just an idea on the fringes into the mainstream Mm. And the rationale was kind of pretty straightforward. The fact that this is from a UK position perspective, but just as right as New Zealand, if all key decisions are being made by officials in the capital, how do you know those decisions are going to benefit your regions? Mm. And and generally speaking, when when you're in that situation where you have one agent that's making those decisions, they're going to opt for one size fits all approaches to policy. And and, Mm. and not surprisingly, because they're based in the centre, and, and it's very hard for them to design policies that are going to work in the far north mm. and in Impecagill, or work for rural communities, or work for Maori communities, as well as, you know, non-Maori communities elsewhere. And mm. to get that, to get policies that are responsive to local need, you need to shift the decision-making more closely to the communities themselves, or to an environment where communities can actually be more involved in shaping those decisions themselves. And, and, you know, and, and so the localism project is to move us towards that kind of environment It's not meant to undermine central government. In fact, what I like to think is that it strengthens central government because we need the center to focus on the big issues mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. pandemic, for example. Mm-hmm. You need central government to do the big strategic issues for New Zealand as a whole set the policy frameworks you know, like a national spatial plan or whatever. And within that, allow communities to kind of shape those policies to make, to best reflect the kind of communities they are. Mm. So, Mike, I know
1: some people who would say that all sounds very nice and well, but the problem is local government and communities don't have the capacity or the skills to be able to make decisions and provide services locally. What would you say to that?
0: Well, have given actually quite a bit of thought to that. And the problem is that actually we we think communities all the evidence tells us that communities do have the interest and do have the capability otherwise you know so it's a very easy thing for people in the center to say mm. you know I'd be working in Wellington and, and, and you fall into the trap that I'm working in the central government I'm working in Wellington we know what's best for people mm. we can employ the highest paid large salaries so we must know a lot and to and, and in a sense to run down the sort of ability of, of citizens to actually know their own interests and make decisions in their interests, in their own interests and develop useful policies. I think the evidence from around the world tells us that's not true. And one of the one of the reasons it's important to me just at the moment is, is probably what's happening in democratic terms in, in many parts of the world, which is things like the rise of populism, decisions like the, the Brexit decision, the election of, of Trump, and, and the rise of what we call a liberal democracy, the authoritarian leaders, So, associated with all of that has been uh, a distrust in democracy that's been growing quite round around the world. And Mm. when you dig into that distrust, you actually find at the bottom of it is this sense of people feeling disengaged from the political process. You know, they don't feel they are citizens with responsibilities, rights. They're treated perhaps as consumers. They feel they've got their voices not heard. They feel they're overlooked, and they turn to political parties which got simplistic messages. Much of which is about, you know, focused on discrimination against immigrants. Uh, and other
1: discrimination against some other. Not, sometimes it's not even defined, it's just there. No, any
0: difference. Difference is mm. bad. And and that's why I, I quite like the phrase illiberal democracies, I suppose, the real ones. And when you dig into that, it's, it's the fact that people don't feel they've got agency. They don't feel they've got ability to shape their own communities because the decisions are being made by experts, usually in the capital. They're being left out of the. Political and economic model that that the work, that many parts of the world have adopted over the last few decades, and and what we actually are, our task and our responsibility, and it's true in New Zealand as well, but not to the same degree, thankfully, is to kind of return agency back to communities, mm. yeah, which is giving communities the ability to start shaping their own destiny to some degree, but certainly shape their own localities, and as a way of of providing an alternative to that sense of powerlessness, which is actually really causing the election of these extreme regimes to kind of arise in these countries so for me that the, the localism project is about empowering communities to have a better say yes there are going to be things where you need a level of expertise there are some things that need to be done at the center there are things that might need to be done regionally or collectively where communities you know, through the local governments can, can group together because that's the way it is but there are many more things that communities can be involved in than is the current state Affairs in New Zealand at the moment.
1: So that's where where we're coming from. Yeah. And I think we've seen situations where handing that power out from the centre to local communities has worked really effectively. There are some good case studies in New Zealand as well as around the world. And I mean, Mike, when you're talking there and describing that, I was getting butterflies in my stomach and getting excited. Like I'm someone who that intrinsically makes sense for me. But what's been the reaction to the localism work that you've been doing?
0: It was quite interesting. Actually, a lot of comments we got in our consultation phase, and not unreasonable ones, were our council does not have the capability to take on more responsibilities. And I don't really have a problem with that, because the capability that the local government may have at the moment is to do what it normally does. You know, so we don't expect it to have a capability yeah. beyond that. You know, so in a sense, that capability will reflect you know, the nature of the task that your local government has to do, and it may not be your government because we are also wanting to see decisions brought down below the level of the local government yeah. as well. You know, it's about neighborhood empowerment in many respects that we're talking about and, and the different kind of structures and processes for that, which, which thoroughly interests me. Yeah. The big question also in our feedback is, oh, that's all very well. And this comes from the councils. How is it going to be paid for?
1: Yeah. You know,
0: so you know, and, and people don't fully realize how, if you like, transformative some of these ideas are You know, it's not just that uh, we want councils to have a bigger role in perhaps employment in their district. It's also we actually think that the taxation system should be amended in such a way that the local governments have a better share of the country's wealth, in a sense. And it's what's the mechanism for doing that in an accountable way? Not,
1: Mm.
0: you know, the problem, a very interesting survey I read many years ago looking at why local government turnout in the United Kingdom was so bad, which is significantly less than in New Zealand. And the people, the citizens who were surveyed, one of their common answers was, well, what's the point of um, voting for councillors at our time? Because all the decisions are made by the officials in Whitehall. Hmm. So, so, so our know, councillors can't influence those. And that was a, a reflection of the fact that at that point, 75% of local governments, Revenue in the United Kingdom came from central government right and that 75 percent came with you know I feel like performance measures and it was tagged you know so local government in the UK does a lot of social services service of children or housing but the money came with conditions about how it was to spend so the the locally elected members had very little discretion and yeah. it's the discretion that counts you yeah. know.
1: Okay, so you've shared there a little bit of what was the the feedback from councils. Yeah, so councils saying, "Hmm, not sure if we've got the capability. Yes. And what about central government? I mean, it seems to me that if this is to happen, a lot of people, a lot of officials and ministers and central government need to have quite a different understanding or perspective about what their role is. So what did you learn in the feedback about what they think?
0: I have to be honest, I, we didn't get a great deal of enthusiasm from central government. And we're not surprised at that. In a sense, in, in a very practical sense, people are elected as MPs to do things. It's very hard to suggest the best way of achieving outcomes <laughs> is to give powers away. You know, it's like yeah. and and the same with the officials, you know, I think you know, they probably see that as a bit of a threat. Yeah. So we we in, in terms of promo- there are two kind of pathways that I think we need to go down to in terms of promoting because for me the localism project is a long-term project, and it's about changing hearts and minds. It's not, you know, it's changing policies at the center is the last step. You've actually got to have Mm. communities buy in to say, hey, we would like to have more say over how these services are delivered in our district. You know, and it may just be that they want to have more influence over existing services, more so than we want to take over their running. And And that's absolutely fine too. So our task is really to, communities have to get on board and, I, and the decision makers will then follow, and that's kind of what happened in the United Kingdom. And in two thousand eleven, they passed what they call the Localism Act in right. the UK, which was kind of a step on the way. But also, side by side, or, or, or really actually part of changing hearts and minds, we need to begin to identify where localism work is working really well. You know, and in New Zealand at the moment, you look around the country, there's some really good examples of communities taking that sort of responsibility for their own welfare, aspects of their own well-being, hmm. whether it's, you know, in my community in Wellington, you know, just about every household has got, you know, is, is attempting to catch rats. And, and you know, <laughs> so we've got a massive and right through Wellington, you've got people with rat traps all over their properties trying to, to you know, preserve the native the native <laughs> birds. And We caught a rat the other day. I immediately <laughs> put it onto the neighbourhood website, <laughs> so we have a running we have a running total, which probably is how many rats. Uh, each yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, kind of yeah.
1: I'm twelfth on the leaderboard. Yep. <laughs> yeah.
0: We're well, getting up there. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. That why have we got more rats than anybody else? is another. There's another worry. Hmm. But so for me, it's about saying, "Hey, here, this is what community empowerment can really do for their communities," and selling that. And it's turning the local government. And to some degree, central government, more into enabling and empowering agencies. You know, moving away from the sense of dependency on your governments to do things for you. And the governments actually work alongside communities in partnerships. So it's finding examples of that working now. And probably some of the really good ones that are working on relationship approaches like aura where you've got you know, Maori organizations working together to take a holistic approach to social services in some districts. Mm. Post-treaty settlements, again, create environments where iwi and Harper are actually taking control of aspects of their lives and their services in their communities. So I think for us, it's finding those examples of communities doing things really well and how this has got sort of spillover effects in terms of well-being generally, whether it's social capital, because you've got sort of strong networks of people working together, whether it is just building trust in local institutions, whether it just makes the whole thing more efficient, because you've got a lot of people contributing to projects their own time and their effort but also it means that public funding is better targeted to local need so in terms of what we call allocative efficiency is going to be better yeah so we have to sell a value proposition.
1: So Mike you said there there were two pathways one you've just been talking about was communities saying hey yeah this is what we want and then things might follow what's the other pathway?
0: The other way is something I think we have to keep doing, but it's actually trying to change the informed opinion. So we need the universities, yeah, you know, the think tanks, right, to start to say, "Hey, taking a less centralised approach to these kind of questions." And mm-hmm. here's the evidence. You know, actually, mm-hmm. we've done the research and we can show that yeah, you know, the economy in this district has grown you know 0.1 faster or whatever it might be by taking a decentralised approach. A couple of examples. Um. Going back to when David Cameron was um, Prime Minister of the UK, so actually it's going back to 2013, this report, he was concerned about economic growth in in the country. It wasn't wasn't kicking off. You know, they'd put in their austerity policies and they thought things should take off. The Mm. opposite happened, of course. And so he asked a former well-known Tory leader, Michael Heseltine, used to be in Margaret Thatcher's government, Lord Heseltine, to undertake it to find out why. What do we need to do to make the British economy go faster? So Heseltine went away and he came back with this big report called No Stone Unturned. And he basically said, to, to actually improve economic growth, we've got to empower councils. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> probably not a popular thought, but it, you know, it really was all about, we need to empower local leaders to do more. And his really focus was how do we stimulate communities, local leaders, local economies. And, and one of our real issues is, our, is the regional inequality in New Zealand. You know, So we have parts of New Zealand have seriously missed out on the economic benefits of the last, you know, growth in the last 30 or 40 years. And in some sense, how the centre does not do a very good job at trying to address that. Certainly under the last government, provincial growth fund was intended to do that. Mm. And I know a lot of our members and some of the some of the regions that have been lagging in social economic indicators found the provincial growth fund really useful. Mm. You go to Whakatuke after the the muscle project in Portuguese, which is a council iwi project, previous mayor had banged his head on the doors of government departments for 10 years to try and sell that project. Mm. That took the provincial growth fund to enable that to get across the line. But it's not a sustainable way of actually addressing Mm. regional inequality. Mm. We can't expect a minister to come up every every now and then to create a grant fund. We need a sustainable way of empowering the regions to take decisions themselves mm. and at the same point be in a situation where we can actually show you know through good mm. research that this has made a difference mm. you know? so i think it's we also need to influence the opinion makers mm. in, in the, around new zealand as well
1: hey look mike i think we should wrap things up there i've loved hearing your perspective both on what are some of the big changes you've noticed in your career, the increasing diversity, the changes in the local government act, and then unpacking a little bit with you of why localism, what it might look like. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your thoughts. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you?
0: Look, my email, which is just mike.read at lgz.co.nz. But our website has got my contact deals on it. It's got a, a series of localism pages, which will keep you up to speed on localism news. But that's just localism.nz. Nice.
1: Hey, thanks again, Mike, and cheers.
0: Thank you, Paul. Enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nga mihi